Psalms are a great, great book. Um, so before we get to our psalm today, which is Psalm 133, so you can already head there. It's a really short psalm. Uh, but before I do, I want to talk about my heart, soul, mind, strength goals for September. One of the things that I introduced is a discipleship model that I work with where I take Jesus' command to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbors yourself. And I've kind of adapted that using kind of psychological categories to say, I think that as Christians, it's really important for us to recognize that there's probably one way. Uh, I think Christians have kind of a native love language towards God. There's kind of usually a sphere of activity through which we experience God most powerfully. For some people, that's relationships, heart. For other people, that's prayer or times of worship or introspection with God, times of silence before God, that's soul. For others, it's kind of digging into the word, studying, reading, memorizing scripture, listening to kind of really strong biblical teaching. That would be mind. And lastly, strength in the area of serving and giving. So what I do in my own life to grow as a disciple is to challenge myself at the start of each month, I kind of say, what's one thing that I could be doing in each area that would really challenge me to grow? Where, where do I feel like God is, is trying to kind of either recalibrate some things or introduce something completely new? And I think that's important because as a mind type, my default would be to show up at the start of the month and kind of be excited to go into the month because I'm going to learn a whole bunch of stuff about God. That comes naturally to me. I love to read my Bible. I love to listen to podcasts and sermons. I love to learn. But for me to grow as a disciple and to honor Jesus' great commandment, I have to push myself to learn to experience and love God in other ways that don't just come naturally and easily to me as a mind type. And so I push myself in the areas of heart, soul, and strength. And I really encourage you guys to do this as, as well. I think when you do it, what you realize is, yeah, there are some areas that just, it's easy for, it's kind of easy for me to do them because I experience God so powerfully and they just are kind of second nature to me. But these other areas, it's really awkward and challenging. But we need to remind ourselves that Jesus said the most important commandment, the great commandment, the one on which everything else finds its place is you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus didn't say or strength. You love God in a way that works for you and you kind of fit that into your life. It's we have to learn to adapt and conform our entire life around this great and big God. And just like all the healthiest relationships in your life are not one-dimensional, they're multi-dimensional, our relationship with God needs to be the same. So in the area of heart and relationships, I know that September is a big uh, month in terms of going back to school and we've got uh, a million kids in a million different schools and the schedule's all crazy starting you know, this week. And I've just been praying and thinking about it a lot and realizing I just need to do a lot of encouraging and support of my family as we all kind of move into this um, very new schedule. We are transitioning out of summer and into high-octane high uh, fall. So I want to really challenge myself to encourage and support my family in that area. Uh, also in the uh, kind of soul area, I need to continue to deepen my time of Sabbath. I've done a pretty good job of not working on my Sabbath, but not always the best job of kind of sequestering time to really pray, even if it's just for a solid 30 minutes, to pray and just enjoy uh, God. I'm, I've Sabbath has always been hard for me just to not work. Um, but now I really realize, I think, in this next movement, God's calling me to a kind of a greater intimacy during that time, to not just not work, but to invest that time in creative ways with him. In the area of mind, uh, I talked about last month that I was kind of learning a whole bunch of stuff around the same-sex marriage debate and kind of uh, saturating myself in kind of the best thinking on, in that discussion. 
But what I realized is in doing that, kind of my normal Bible reading kind of fell to the wayside. So this month I'm kind of recalibrating that and saying, I think I just need to spend a month doing kind of the Grant Horner reading plan, which is it's kind of intense. It's about 10 chapters a day. I normally don't do 10 a day. I normally do five or six. But I really kind of felt like I was immersed in a topic of Scripture, but I really want to get re-immersed in Scripture as the year um, starts off. And lastly, uh, strength. This isn't kind of a direct strength thing in the sense of like, this is the way I'm going to serve and give. But one of the habits that I've gotten out of since moving to here in the flux and flow of settling and moving and then moving again and then summer mode, which is kind of loosey-goosey, is weekly planning. It's really important for me at the start of the week to say, what are the highest priorities that I feel like God is calling me to make sure get done this week? And that was a habit that I'd kind of gotten out of. I kind of just rolled into Monday and kind of thought, oh, it'll probably work out. We'll just kind of go with the flow. But I realized that um, I'm at my best in terms of serving and giving to other people when I've intentionally kind of looked at my week and prayerfully planned into it. So that's a habit that, you know, for the next uh, few Sundays, I really want to make sure that I'm, I'm hitting. Um, next week, just a reminder, is our kickoff barbecue. I invite you to bring a side or a dessert. We're going to supply kind of hot dogs or, or um, hamburgers that's going to be happening right after the service. We're also going to be having sign-ups for small groups starting next week and for all kinds of ministry areas, ways that you can get involved. And lastly, um, we are going to have a men's retreat in October. It's in your bulletin. We're still working out the details, but we have secured the date at Pines. It's going to be awesome. Uh, the three covenant uh, pastors in the area got together and we kind of decided kind of where we're going to go. And it, it's going to be pretty great. So at this point, save the date. More details in the weeks to follow. Okay, Psalm 133, you've had lots of time to find it and get there. Very short psalm, very, very powerful. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. You can follow along. It's going to be on the screen as well if you uh, haven't been able to locate it or are unfamiliar with the Bible. Psalm 133, a song of ascents. This is a psalm of David. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Done. Short psalm. This is a psalm of ascents. When people were going to worship God uh, on, on the temple hill in Zion at, at the temple, they would be singing the song. Probably wasn't very long, obviously. But this was a song of, as we go to gather together, to worship God together, this is one of the songs that um, people are repeating and celebrating and singing together as groups of people. In some cases, at some points in the year, thousands of people would be singing this together. Very, very powerful. This psalm is obviously about unity. And, and unity, on a most basic level, just refers to the state of being unified and kind of together in something. It's, it's, it's when... There's a bunch of people, but they're held together and unified as a whole. There's no fracture. Um, there's no disconnect. They are together kind of in spirit and in, uh, and in mission. And one of the things that you will know if you ever experience times of unity in your life, and we all have. Think about a sports team or a time in your marriage or in your family or in a friendship, maybe time in ch as a church where you've experienced that kind of like togetherness and that wholeness and that like, yeah, we're in this. And like, there's just a good sense of camaraderie. There's a lot of power in unity. 
And that's one thing that Psalm 133 is trying to draw out and put before us. There's a, there's a special kind of power in unity. Yes, unity between friends, there's power in that. Yes, there's unity and there's a power when, when marriages are strong and unified, uh, when families, uh, you know, relationships between parents and children, when that's unified, there's power in that. But Psalm 133 is saying there's something uh, that's kind of deeper and more pervasive and unique when a community, when God's people are unified. When the gathered body of Jesus comes together and is unified in its celebration and love and proclamation uh, and, and living out of the gospel. Now, a lot of people want unity. If you were to go to most people and say, would you like unity to be a, a more important part of your life, to, to, to be a kind of a baseline characteristic of your relationships? Everyone's going to say yes, because we intuitively understand that when, you're, when things are kind of just working in a relationship, Every, just, everything just seems to go smoother. It's awesome. There is power in unity. So we all want unity. My experience, though, both personally and pastorally, is that a lot of us want unity but aren't actually interested in cultivating the habits, heart, soul, mind, and strength that promote unity, that build unity, that sustain unity. Or we want unity but we're not willing to put to death certain patterns in our life that interfere with unity. So we want it, but we want it to kind of just happen. We want it to kind of come to us. And that's why in general, I think people's experience of unity in their marriage and friendships and their family and their workplaces and their church is actually kind of a little rare. Because if we have this passive view that unity, unity is something that just kind of happens to us, that we don't have to work at and work for, I don't think we're going to experience it a lot of the time. Unity is rare because unity, like genuine unity, is very hard won. You don't kind of, it doesn't just fall into your lap. It has to be something that you're fighting for. You've got to fight for it in your marriage. You've got to fight for it in your church. You've got to fight for it in your relationships. And, and it's something that isn't easy because at its core, in order for us to be unified, we have to have a vision greater than our personal preferences, our personal ego needs, our personal um, agendas. We have to say there's something that's more important than that. Those things might not be unimportant, but there's something that overwhelms them, that takes a greater priority, and we can all agree on that, we can move into that. And a lot of people haven't even thought through what those bigger things are in some of the spheres of relationships in their life, and so there isn't unity. Because we often approach unity as, oh, so when all these other people get on board with my thoughts, then we'll have unity. So unity is the process of just outlasting the other people. I'll just wait, I'll wait until my kids get it, or my spouse gets it, or these people in my church get it. So I want unity, and when God wants unity in this church, he can fix those people too. And that's not the way unity works. Unity is about people coming together because there's a larger vision that both people can say, this isn't easy, it's hard, but I'm submitting my agenda and my wants and my ego needs for something bigger. And the Bible says when that happens, and when that happens within the context of a worshiping community, there's a very distinctive kind of power that happens. 
Unity is something that you're commanded as a Christian to prioritize and pour money into. When Jesus is praying about his disciples who are going to form the first church, but then he's praying for all the disciples who would, all the people who would become part of the church, become Christians as, as part of this movement of Christianity, he says in John 17, May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And in Ephesians 4, Paul is writing to a young church in Ephesus, and he's hammering on this theme with them. He says, I want you to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He doesn't say, if you get a chance, you've got some spare energy and time and stuff, like you could kind of work on unity. He says, this is a front, front burner priority issue. You should make every effort time, energy, money, whatever it takes. There's no expenditure too big. You should make every effort to keep unified together around the gospel, around the mission of Jesus. And so the Bible makes it very clear, not just in these scriptures, but as a unified whole, if you read the Bible as a story, that unity is really, really important. But in Psalm 133, what you discover is, is kind of some of the reasons some of the fruit of what happens if you were to actually prioritize it. When I became a Christian, I heard like, oh, unity is important. And it was kind of like, okay, why? Well, because Jesus says so. The Bible says so. Okay, I guess so. But Psalm 133 shows you why we should be fighting for unity. And I think unity is something that you have to fight for. It is something that you have to be battling for because there's so many forces culturally and within us that kind of want to tease us away from each other and invite us into patterns of thinking that are really about why would I submit my wants and needs to this larger thing? Like, wouldn't life just be better if I just carried on doing my thing? So this is where Psalm 133 becomes really helpful. Number one, and and the three reasons why you should fight for unity are just the three verses. So the first verse talks about the fact that we should fight for unity because unity is good and it is pleasant. The Bible says, objectively speaking, from God's perspective, when people are in unity, that's a good thing. God says, that's good. That's the way I want things to be. Unity is the default setting of the kingdom of God. That is what God wants in marriages and relationships, but certainly amongst his people. But subjectively, how unity is experienced by people, it's it's pleasant, it's pleasurable. When, um, When your workplace has developed a culture of genuine unity and camaraderie. You know, you can have a very demanding, challenging job, but that vibe of unity can just completely overwhelm some of the darker, more difficult, challenging parts of your job. And you can still look forward very much to going to work every day. If you might be walking through a very, very challenging season um, externally, um, or maybe even internally, personally, within your marriage, but if you are unified within your marriage, there's a certain strength with which you can move out into the world that, that isn't there if you're not unified. And there's just a joy that comes when in some of your closest relationships, there's just that almost magical, you're getting each other and things are working and it's, it's just, oh, this is just good. We're, we're together in this and you know it. And sometimes you can't even articulate it because it's not, it, it's more like a texture of the culture. It's kind of like, oh, just things seem really great right now. It's just pleasant. And it's pleasurable. It's just great to be around these people. And God says, yeah, that, that's what I want. That's what I want to be characteristic of every sphere in your life. Sin is the thing that poisons and, and creates a toxin in relationships and separates. My redemptive purposes are always about bringing people together and unifying them. 
Now, unity doesn't mean that there's always going to be one way of viewing things. Unity isn't uniformity. Sometimes the church has kind of gone down that road and kind of acted as if unity is about outward conformity to a certain picture of what a true Christian looks like or, or whatever. Unity isn't about having a oneness of view, but it's about a oneness of kind of spirit. And it's a oneness of focusing on what we can all agree on, even in some of our disagreements, is that the kingdom of God should take a priority. And that we should be learning to seek first the kingdom of God like Jesus told us to and live in submission to Jesus as our king. That's, that's Christian unity. And so Christian unity is unification around a goal. And when that happens in a church, however meager, God says that is a good thing and it's experienced by people as, as pleasant. Verse 2 says that unity actually facilitates God's mission. Unity is kind of like fuel or it's like a kind of a social lubricant that helps things move forward. Now, you you might not get this from the text uh, because it's kind of a weird uh, picture, illustration that we're seeing. Verse 2 says, unity, when, when brothers dwell together in unity, it's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robe. Who's Aaron? What? Why are we talking about beards? This is weird. <laughs> Depending on what you know about the scripture, this is one of those things where it's like, you lost me. This is derailed. This seems completely disconnected from anything normal or sane or that I, I can track with. Uh, Aaron in the Old Testament is the first priest that Moses anoints as kind of the figurehead priest over Israel. Um, Aaron is a priest that is anointed to, have, uh, to be separate from the normal duties of an Israelite as God's people. And Aaron's anointed with oil that's been mixed with spices that gives off this really strong but powerful sweet scent. And Aaron is anointed in order to fulfill a priestly duty and then all the other priests under him kind of share in that anointing. And in Exodus 29 and 30, when Moses anoints Aaron, um, it's, this, this, this oil and spice is poured over Aaron's head and it runs down his beard and it drips off his beard. So it's the symbol to a Jewish person of um, God consecrating, setting apart Aaron to be holy, God consecrating this whole new division of people within Israel to be priests. And a, and a priest, we might think maybe Roman Catholic priest, a priest um, has a different association in the Old Testament. A priest in its most basic level is people who are, act as a bridge between God and the, and the nation, God and people. So a priest brings the blessing and love of God in concrete ways to the people. And the priest brings the hurt and pain of the people and the need of the people to God. So they're praying on behalf of the people and they're bringing God's blessing and favor. And the oil that's being poured over Aaron is symbolic of the fact that God wants to bless his people. God is setting up a system so that these priests could minister healing and care and love towards his people. And his people know that they have representatives who will constantly before the throne of God bring their petitions in prayer because God cares for them. And, he has a, and he's, God is a stakeholder in this nation. So it's this very powerful image. But how, what does it have to do with God's mission? Well, this, uh, David is saying, when you have unity, it's like that moment when Aaron got um, the oil poured over him, and everybody could smell it. It had sweet fragrances, and it just was like, yeah, like, we are meant to be a kingdom of priests. God talks about that in Exodus 19. He says, I'm going to set aside some priests, but they're there for you to be reminded that all of Israel is supposed to be 
priests to the world. So the way that these priests work in your nation, they connect, they're, they're the intermediary between God and, and you. Israel, you're supposed to be that between God and a lost world. You're supposed to be the people through whom my blessing comes to bring healing and deliverance and salvation. And you're to bring the needs and brokenness of the world back to me. So these priests are there to symbolically remind you that I want, ultimately, part of my mission is that you become a kingdom of priests. That's something that is echoed in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2.5 says, when he's speaking to a group of young, fledgling churches, probably no bigger than this, some of them, he says, you also, you're living stones. You are being built up, sorry, you are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. You are a new Israel, the people of God. You are being set apart to be a holy people. And when there's unity, that happens very, very naturally. When churches are unified, when they understand what their mission is to be the front line of blessing and care to a hurting world, that is fragrant. That, to people even who don't want anything to do with religion or Christianity or what they see as institutional religion, that's still sweet-smelling to see churches and to see Christians actively engage in bringing mercy and relief and grace to the world. People might say, oh, I don't think I'll ever become a Christian. I don't think I'll ever go to church. But if I did ever go to church, I'd probably go to that church. Or I'd want, like, I don't really, I think a lot of Christians are hypocrites, but those Christians, I think, have something. And that facilitates God's mission. When, when the church is unified in, um, around Jesus and around the mission of the kingdom, God's mission just flows very, very naturally. And we know from history, some of you know from your own history in churches, when a church isn't unified, one of the last things that ever happens is outward impact into the world. Because the church gets so, whether, I don't think it's justified, but I think in people's eyes it's justified, we get so hung up on the actual disagreement, the issues, the disunity, the, the petty squabbles, that the church just kind of collapses in on itself and what can happen then is that can calcify, that can set in, that can lead to entropy. And you fast forward 20 years and there's no church anymore. Or it's mechanical. People are showing up on Sunday and going through the motions and then leaving. But there's no outward mission. See, disunity, when there isn't unity, when there isn't harmony, when, when people aren't fighting for unity, it actually gets in the way of God's purposes of what he wants to do in the church and out through the church. Uh, and lastly, unity in verse 3, it refreshes and it enlivens. Another really strange <laughs> picture. Unity, um, when, when brothers dwell together in unity, it's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Doesn't make any sense to you at all if you don't understand the geography of Israel. So let me show you some of the geography of Israel. This is Mount Hermon in Israel. This is northern Israel. It's a pretty big mountain. It's the highest mountain in all of Israel, northern part of Israel. And as you can see from this picture, for a substantial part of the year, it will have snowfall or it will have condensation um, on not just the mountains, but in the areas because it cools so much and then you have the moisture that's very, very thick in that area. If you read people who go to Mount Hermon and stand kind of in the plains underneath it, both in the evening and in the morning, they will say, it's a very thick dew. Like it's a high level of humidity and moisture in the air. You can very much feel it. And it's kind of unique uh, to Israel. A lot of Israel is um, 
while it's not completely desert, we might picture in our head, it, it t- tends to be much, much drier. And Mount Hermon is one of the few places where you have snow that will settle, and then like here in the summer, that snow begins to melt, and it feeds down the mountain into the plains around it. So you have a lot of lush plains around here. If you were to look at some of the pictures in this area, it might upset your idea of thinking of like Israel, desert, sand everywhere. These are, this is a very, very lush environment. And the psalmist is saying, A, when unity happens, it's like that refreshment that you'd experience at the base of Mount Hermon, in the cool of the evening or in the cool of the morning, when the days are so hot, but there are these moments that are just refreshing. It's just like, oh, it's nice, like a sprinkler on a hot day. Unity is just refreshing. And again, is there anything more draining in church life, in your marriage, in in your friendships, than when there's discord and disunity? Is there anything that just slowly grinds you away from the inside out more than when people are bickering and at each other and not willing to lay down their own kind of pet issues? And Scripture says, David says, you know, when there's unity, it is just so refreshing, but also it's, it's enlivening. It brings things to life. There's, there's vegetation and plants um, and agriculture that's possible at the base of this mountain that is not possible in other parts of Israel because of the moisture, because of the water that gets there. And, and David is saying, when there's unity among believers, man, it's, um, things come alive Disunity chokes things out slowly. It slowly suffocates hope and creativity and joy and, again, mission. But when there's unity, things just come to life. There's a flourishing that, again, people can't even predict. It's not formulaic. It's just like where there's unity, there's life and there's growth. And it's happening in all different spheres. You can't really contain it. It's just, it's this beautiful picture where David's saying, oh, man, like, unity, there's such a fruit of unity. It's so worth fighting for. But when dissension becomes a focal point in a church, when disagreements move from capital D disagreements to capital, sorry, lowercase d disagreements to capital D disagreements, all of that, all of that blessing, all of that mission, all of that refreshment, all of that enlivening can just crawl to a stop. And we've probably all experienced that. And certainly if you've been, if you've lived in honest relationships long enough and being honest with yourself about them, church life long enough, you know, we understand that. So Psalm 133 is saying, I will, you know, David is saying, unity is such a good, pleasant thing. Don't just hope that it will happen. Fight to make it happen. Now, the Psalm talks about two ways that we can fight for unity. There's lots, but I don't, I don't want to get to that yet. What I want to do first is I want to show you a video that's, um, for me, it's made me, compl- I've never thought about church unity and what it means to be united around the gospel the same way since seeing it. Um, the video that I'm about to show you is a video of the musical artist Beck. Beck is a, kind of a musical genius. He tends to do a lot of very hyper-creative things. And in this video, what you're going to see is Cadillac, the car company in the States, went to Beck, said, we want to do this big online promotional thing for Cadillac and rebrand ourselves and kind of try and be cool for people under 40. Um, so will you help us? And he said, sure. And, he, and they said, maybe you could do like some kind of presentation song thing and uh, just do your creative thing that you do. Um, you don't really tell Beck what to do. You just kind of give him rope and then he just runs with it um, and, and does his own thing. And so what he did was he decided to 
completely revision a song that had been very important to him when he was younger, and that was David Bowie's song, Sound and Vision, from the 70s. Um, So what Beck did is he took this song and he revisioned it in a really interesting way. You'll you'll see from the setup, but I'll just introduce it a little bit just so you know what's going on. He created a 360-degree stage that rotates um, with rotating artists with, uh, around the edges and audiences on the inside. Then he created a, um, I, f- I forgot the tech- technical name, I should have looked it up, but he created a specialized microphone that is meant to mimic precise, as precisely as possible how the human ear inputs sound and place that right in the center of the room. So you watch the video now, it's not the full experience, you wanna get the full experience, you go home and you get a good pair of earphones, like good stuff. Don't put your iPod earphones in there. Get like actual real ones. And, um, and what you get and what he tried to do is to create the sensation of being in the center of that room and hearing the music in a 360. It's a very different um, and it's a very powerful experience. Now, again, you're going to experience it not in its full glory. But what I want you to do is I want you to watch the video. It's a little, it's a little bit long, but it's, very, it's kind of like a living illustration. It's about nine minutes long, but I want you to watch it through the lens of church unity. And then after we watch the video, what I want to ask you is what did you notice? What did, why do you think that video would be good to think about as we're studying Psalm 133 and this theme of being unified together? So let's watch. Yeah. There was a lot of people working in unity. They were all working together playing with one deck and one person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a huge coordinated effort. I watched the behind the scenes video. I forget how long it is, but it's months and months and months in planning, like six, eight months to pull off one performance. A huge amount of a coordination to think how are we going to get all these different instrumentation? And the only way it works is you have. Back in the center, I mean, you had your, you notice you had your pit leaders, right? You had your choir master, you had your orchestral master, you had your pit leaders, but you had an ultimate orchestrator, which to me is just a great visual metaphor of, again, the only way that unity works in the church is that we're, we're focused on, on Jesus at the center. That's the only way all of the instrumentation is going to work together. What's another thing that you noticed about um, the video? Great comment. Right, right. So instruments that wouldn't even normally be allowed in the same room, and certainly not in the same song, Beck intentionally said, I want to, I want to figure out a way to pull a didgeridoo in with uh, orchestra, in with percussion, in with uh, electric guitar, which again, I think speaks so often to unity. So often pastors, and I think we're often to blame for this, but also churches say, we want to have unity, and as long as you're this kind of person, you're welcome. And if you're not, I mean, you're still welcome, asterisks, but like, not like embraced. We're not going to look for a way to include you because like, we're like a percussion church. So, so I think it's, yeah, such a great visual metaphor for 
what Christ wants to do in his church is unity does not mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that we all have to start playing the guitar, so to speak. We bring our gifts and we look to the, the ultimate leader and the author and the perfecter of this song and this expression of God's mission, and he allows us to find our place in it in a way that isn't disruptive, but actually harmonizes and enhance, enhances what is happening. Any other comments that you noticed, know, Carl? Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, I love the yodeler. He's my favorite part of the whole video. It's so great. That sends shivers up your spine when you're watching it with the, the uh, listening to it with a full uh, surround sound experience. It's pretty powerful. So again, this theme of differences or uh, uniquenesses not seen as threats to unity or to a threat to what's happening, um, but something that was, is going, going to actually enhance it. And so that's often what I think about when I think about church unity is that we have to understand that, and again, this comes back to one of the things I initially taught about understanding your spiritual love language, heart, soul, mind, strength, that there's different types within the church. And churches are not healthy if they say, we're a mind church, you're welcome here if you're like me, we'll create opportunities to grow like me in my image. Healthy churches say, I am who I am, this is how I serve and worship God and my kind of root love language, but I'm learning to experience um, Jesus in all kinds of ways that fall outside of what is normal or natural to me. Um, and this is a place for anybody else who's interested in doing that too. Because I'm a mind type, but I want to learn from heart types, and I need to learn from strength types. Um, anyone catch, I don't know if you noticed it, maybe for those who are more musically inclined, you might have noticed it, there was three actual phases to the performance. I don't know if you caught it. What was the first phase that you remember in the performance? What was, what was kind of happening there? It was warm-up. It was awkward. There wasn't actual unity. It was intentional incoherence. He had different uh, parts of the band play from di for different moments, bits, pieces of the song. But it, it didn't seem like it was coming together. Lights went down, boop, 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 descends into chaos. You know, n no church, no group starts with unity. You always start with we got to kind of build some momentum here. This is kind of, <laughs> we're, not, we're not tracking with the same stuff. And I love that Beck included that. He could have just started in the second movement. But he doesn't. He created a three-minute first movement that was just really awkward. And audibly awkward, visually awkward, sensorily awkward. And I think that's so important for us to recognize as the church that, again, especially as a, as a community of believers, unity isn't the default. There's, a, there's an awkwardness that sometimes has to be overcome. The second movement was coherence. They started playing the song together. They, they, they played Bowie's Sound and Vision, including everybody, but they played that for about two or three minutes. What was the third movement, though? There was a tonal shift. What happened in the third movement? Joy. Joy. There's way more joy, and they started playing Bowie's song in a new way. That's where the innovation came in. The third movement was innovation. It was incoherence and then mimicry. We're, we're on the same, we're making it work. It sounds good, but he doesn't leave it there. He says, I want you to do a new song. I want you to take this song. In Bowie's Sound and Vision, most musical historians will say that was at a very low point in Bowie's life. It was actually a time when he was struggling with depression. And it's a song about how he couldn't find sound and vision for his life or for his music anymore. And the blue room is meant to be symbolic of, I'm in this room where depression is overwhelming me. And Beck says, I'm going to take this song that was about dead end and about 
um, not finding hope and having no joy and momentum, and I'm going to make it about joy. So he takes a song and he does something new with it. And I think that's often a vision that we miss in Christian community. God doesn't want us to just get along. There's stages of unity. It's awkward, we're not getting along, or we're learning to work with each other. Then we get to work with each other. And a lot of churches stop there and they're like, oh great, like we're not fighting. But God wants to do a new song. God wants to do something unique in and through the worshiping community. So part of my takeaway is go home, YouTube, look for that on YouTube, Beck, Sound and Vision, listen to it again a few times, um, and just reflect on how that plays out in terms of Christian unity. How do we fight for unity? Two things in the text, I'm going to mention them very quickly. There's tons of ways you can fight for unity, but this is one that the text highlights. Number one is change your perspective. Some translations in verse one say how pleasant it is when God's people get together and dwell together um, in, in unity. And that is not a good translation. The, the actual translation is the Hebrew word brother. Um, and so it's trying, so the, some of the modern translations move to say God's people because like, well, they didn't literally mean like blood relatives or meaning it in a metaphorical sense, so we'll just say God's people. The problem with that is that you miss kind of the dynamic underpunch, you know, sucker punch of this, which is that, oh, when you're coming together, you're actually not coming together to worship God as like a bunch of just random God's people. You are a reconstituted family. You are brothers and sisters. So you don't show up and get involved in this community as if you're just like an individual and I come and extract something. Brothers, it's this family metaphor. It's something that the New Testament hammers again and again and again. You have to change your perspective. And unity will come a lot more naturally when you understand that you're trying to move towards something with someone who, from God's point of view, is your brother or sister. They're a relative and not just some member of your church or someone who shows up on the other side of the church on Sunday. So change your perspective. We are a family. And that doesn't mean that we don't, it doesn't mean that we never disagree. It doesn't mean that unity means we, we never confront. Because healthy, united families don't ignore issues and they don't avoid confrontation. So that's not what unity means. Uh, healthy, united families, what they practice is humble, direct, honest communication. That's the difference between being united genuinely versus like a false unity where it's like, well, again, we're just not fighting and we just don't actually talk openly about our stuff. So fake smile, minimize actual pain and disagreement. Healthy families practice humble, direct, honest communication. And I would go so far as to say in a church that practices that humble, direct, honest disagreement or even humble, direct, honest conflict has never led to disunity in a church. Never. When it's humble, direct, and honest, it will be awkward and challenging, but you can always move through it and you'll get stronger for it. What, what threatens a church unity is slander, is gossip, is prideful, indirect communication. I have a problem with this person, so I'll talk about this person with that person. And then maybe that person will talk to other people and eventually it'll get back to this person. Those are the kinds of things that disrupt unity, that interfere with it. So unity is about having a new family where we're learning to, yes, even wade through disagreement and conflict differently. Peter Scazzaro says, in the kingdom of God, it's not that we don't complain or we don't have conflict, we just teach people how to complain, and we teach people how to have healthy conflict. And lastly, become a stakeholder. Notice that the text says, how pleasant it is when brothers live together. Some translations say dwell. And it's a very different posture than just showing up to church and then leaving after Sunday. The idea here in the Psalms is, unity is so sweet and pleasant when people are actually investing in other people's lives where it's not just a one and done, 
um, kind of extraction activity that happens f for an hour on Sunday morning, but where I'm not with everybody, it's impossible to do it with everybody, but with a certain sphere of people, our lives are beginning to overlap and I'm extending care throughout the week and learning to love and have people on my radar and praying for them. I'm, I'm, I'm dwelling with them. We're doing life together. We're not around each other all the time, but there's a sphere of people that I see as a group of people that I've been called to love within this larger community. And so it's important for us to become stakeholders in the communities that we're a part of, the churches that we're a part of. Because the psalm, psalmist is assuming when you gather together to worship for the Jewish people on a Saturday, for Christian people on a Sunday, this means something more to you than just one of many activities through the week. This is the start of the week where you worship God and you are investing and willing to have God say, maybe this week you need to connect with this person for coffee. We're gonna be having sign up for small groups starting next week and that's a really important way that you can begin to live this out. To build unity within our church by saying, I wanna get involved in a small group that allows me to kind of have a focal point for six, eight, 10 people that over the year I'm gonna intentionally care for and pray for and love and challenge and let them challenge me. I think that's a really powerful, beautiful thing. Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. May that psalm become our song. Let's pray. God, as we sing this song and prepare for a time of communion would, um, would the power and the glory of unity strike us and would you inspire us to think about ways that even this week there, there might be small actions that we could take, a phone call, prayer, an encouragement, um, maybe putting to death a habit in our life that's standing in the way of unity, but would we, would we step into a vision for unity, God? I want this psalm to be our song I want this church to be unified around you. Different instruments, different styles of music that are all in submission to your lordship. And out of seeing that, your mission goes forward in new and beautiful ways. Amen.